Thank you, Scott. Kids, you are dismissed. Those that are working with the kiddos, you're dismissed as well. Have fun. Thank you for your work and effort with our kiddos. If you are visiting with us and you have no idea what I'm talking about and you have a kid, just follow the crowd. They'll direct you where to go and uh, what's going on with our children during this particular time. So, Well, good morning. Uh, yeah, all right. That's good. I like that. Um, as we've been doing each week, uh, Mr. Cody's going to come up and he's going to read uh, first, or not first, actually, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20 as an effort to remind ourselves and rehearse the truth. Uh, about Christ. So, uh, Cody has graciously agreed to come and do that. So, thank you, Cody. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible. invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Cody. Um, I believe that hymn is situated in the book of Colossians to do just what we have been doing every week, to remind ourselves of the truth of Christ. So that's why we've taken a little bit of time each week to read that, uh, to remind ourselves, like I said, about who Christ is. Um, we have been challenging ourselves to commit that to memory. Hopefully that's been a, a, a valuable experience for you. If I were to be honest, I'm not fully there yet. I'm still working on it as well. Uh, it's a lot within that small five verses, but I strongly encourage you to do that, uh, commit that to memory. Um, if you've noticed through the book of Colossians, we'll be in chapter four today primarily, so if you wanna go ahead and turn there uh, and get prepared. But I, I don't know if you caught this, but in Christianity, we oftentimes talk about the already, not yet, meaning that we already presently enjoy this union and fellowship with Christ and certain benefits from that. But there is an element of not yet, right? We're looking forward to things to come. Well, the book of Colossians has strategically focused on the already. I don't know if you cough that each and every week, but there has been a radical focus on the work of Christ here and now. And for their situation, that becomes apparent of why Paul would do that. But I hope that you can walk away with our four weeks together and say, Christ truly permeates our entire lives. Even with titles, Christ is our foundation. Christ is our philosophy. Christ is our ethic. And now Christ is our motivation. See how Christ undergirds the Christian's life. Every avenue, every aspect, he is our foundation from which we build our understanding about the world around us and ourselves. So I hope that has become clear. And as we wrap up today, to kind of see how Christ forces us and pushes us outward, that he is our motivation, that he is our mission, so to speak. As I prepare for this, I begin to think about the apostles and many who went on before us. Acts chapter 5 tells us about the apostles. They were on the brink of being killed for preaching the gospel, 
And a man named Gamaliel convinced the Pharisees to let him go. Well, verse 40, just listen to this, picks up the story. Here's what it says. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. At 16, Luke records Paul and Silas being thrown into prison because Paul had cast out a demon from a fortune teller and she was no longer profitable to her owner. They then dragged them to the authorities and accused them of disturbing the city. Verses 22 through 24 give us details. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The apostle Andrew was sentenced to be crucified on a cross for preaching against idols worshipped in Greece. He was fastened to the cross with cords rather than nails so that his death would be slow. An ancient writer tells of the apostle's sublime courage and fearlessness in these words, when Andrew saw the cross, he neither changed countenance nor color, as the weakness of mortal man is wont to do. Neither did his blood shrink. Neither did he fail in his speech. His body fainted not. Neither was his mind bothered. His understanding did not fail him. But out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth did speak, and fervent charity did appear in his words. Here's what he said. O cross, most welcome and oft looked for, with a willing mind, joyfully, desirously, I come to thee, being the scholar of him who did hang on thee, because I have been always thy lover, and have longed to embrace thee. Andrew hung on the cross three whole days, suffering dreadful pain, but continually, constantly telling the people around him about the love of Jesus Christ. The people, as they listened to him, began to believe his words, and they asked the governor, let him be taken down from the cross. Well, he didn't want to refuse them, so he ordered the ropes to be cut. But when the last cord was severed, the body of the apostle fell to the ground, dead. The apostle Mark, who wrote down Peter's account of Jesus, was captured. Then his feet tied together and was dragged through the streets in Alexandria and left bruised and bleeding in a dungeon all night. The next day, they burned his body. The apostle James, son of Zebedee, who was called by Jesus to follow him, to become a fisher of men, was the first apostle to meet a martyr's death by the hands of Herod Agrippa. History records his death this, this way. 
when the apostle was led out to die? A man who brought false accusations against him walked with him to the place of his execution. He had doubtless experienced to see St. James looking pale and frightened, but he saw him instead bright and joyous, like a conqueror who had won a great battle. The false witness greatly wondered at this and became convinced the Savior in whom the prisoner by his side believed must be the true God, or he could not impart such cheerfulness and courage to a man about to die. The man himself, therefore, became a convert to Christianity and was condemned to die with St. James the Apostle. Both were consequently beheaded on the same day with the same sword. History tells another story of a group of martyrs in this way. One of the most dreadful events, events recorded in the history of Christian martyrdom, both on the account of the number of victims sacrificed and the terrible manner of their deaths, took place in Africa. By the order of the proconsul, 300 Christians were arranged around a furnace. An altar was also set up near at hand. And the people were commanded either sacrifice to the heathen gods or to suffer the terrible penalty of being cast into the burning furnace. Wonderful to relate, the 300 martyrs not only refused to sacrifice, but with one accord leaped forward to meet the fiery death which their enemies had prepared for them. Brothers and sisters, how is it that men and women willingly suffer loss of life for the sake of the gospel? This message of Christ is no mere self-help, but rather plunges people joyfully into suffering for the message of this God-man. For centuries, it has compelled many to look death in the eye with joy as they continue to proclaim him. This truly demonstrates just how effective his shed blood is. Brothers and sisters, it's to that message we turn this morning, which Paul calls the church to pray for and participate in. It is that very message that has compelled men and women for centuries to give their life, that Paul calls the church to pray for and participate in. Once again, he does that by sounding the beautiful note of Christ as our motivation for this great mission. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul is ending out his letter by giving them further instructions. Here's what he says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, 
seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, Paul is exhorting the church to pray and participate in the mission of God. He starts this strong exhortation by saying pray. And not only pray, but continually pray. And not only continue, but steadfastly. Be devoted to this prayer. See, our prayers are not just a one-shot deal. The Christian makes it a regular habit to pray. Be devoted. Continue steadfastly. To be in constant communion with God is the glad privilege that believers have. To be in constant communion with God is the glad privilege that you and I, brother and sister, have with our great God. You see, the garden, the fall, the sin, whatever you want to call that event, it brought disconnect. But Christ, the God-man, as Colossians, or the book of Colossians, Colossians? Why can't I say the word? I've said it four weeks in a row here. Colossians, as the book reminds us, he has reconciled us. He has reconciled us. Church, do you see prayer as a privilege? A thing won for us by the shed blood of Christ. A, A thing won for us by the shed blood of Christ, to be in constant communication and fellowship with God. There's nothing like ongoing sweet fellowship with our God. And when we pray, we should be watchful and thankful. Paul not only says and exhorts them very strongly to pray, but he gives them instructions on the manner, the attitude of which we take to prayer. You see, he calls them first to pray, but before he gets into the particulars, he deals with their attitude, their approach, their posture in prayer. Watchfulness and thankfulness. Now, it may seem weird. How is someone watchful in prayer, right? Bow head, eyes open. What am I doing here? Like, eyes open, eyes closed, I don't know what I do. How is someone watchful in prayer? Well, I think that there's a sense Paul is asking them to, to be alert. To be attentive towards God during prayer. Don't come to prayer in a humdrum way, but be attentive, listening, focused, watchful towards perhaps temptation, especially considering the previous deviation from the gospel that we explored a few weeks ago. Don't think of prayer as a mundane activity to check off our list, but rather a focused interaction with God. A great privilege that you have. Be watchful. As one scholar put it, possessing a sleepless spirit. Perhaps along with this, there is maybe a push to consider the coming of Christ. Watching was employed a lot throughout the New Testament to tell the Christian, to tell the believer, look forward to the coming Lord. Look forward to Christ. Be ready. Be watchful. Be alert but also do that with thankfulness. They are called to pray with thanksgiving. Now, I don't know if you've caught this, but this is the seventh time that thankfulness or thanksgiving has occurred in Colossians. Now, you don't have to be much of a scholar to say there's something to this point. 
Here's the seventh time that we interact with this road. Here's what we've learned so far. We've learned that where the peace of Christ rules, guess what else is there? There is Thanksgiving, chapter 315. We also learned those established in the faith, guess what they do? They abound in Thanksgiving, chapter 2, verse 7. We saw at the beginning of the entire book, Paul's prayer for the Colossians is with Thanksgiving, chapter 1, verse 3. Paul exhorts the church to be thankful, we saw last week, chapter 3, verse 17. And now here, it saturates our prayers. With an attitude of thanksgiving, prayers should be offered to God. Thanksgiving should be a regular part of a believer's life, in attitude and in our expression. Because... As I've done a lot of reading this week, this is a a great explanation of why this should be. Here's, Here's a great quote. Thanksgiving is the deepest expression of recognition for the direct experience of God's grace. It is the way by which we declare that we are grateful, that we have experienced God's grace. Understand clearly, church, Thanksgiving is driven by what Christ, the God-man, has and is doing for us. Our gratefulness springs from that reality. He has reconciled us. Last week, we saw that he's working in us to put to death our old self in order to put on the new. Christ is working and will continue to work in us. I think thankfulness guards the heart. I think it guards our heart. We should make it a regular habit to consider the cross and what God through Christ has and is accomplishing for us. Our thankfulness has a never-ending well to draw from. Paul can say to be thankful because he understands there is a place from which we draw our thanksgiving that never runs dry. It's Christ and his work in us. And he almost screams from the page, it will guard you from being stupid. It'll guard you perhaps from sin, and it will absolutely heighten your prayer. Thankfulness is is the playground by which the putting on, we said this last week, and and putting off our old self, that's where it happens. We are not thankful because we are not considering what Christ has done for us. Isn't the natural result of that great work? Thankfulness. Well, the next thing Paul instructs them on And their prayers is this content. So he's he's dealt with kind of our attitude, our manner, our posture when we go to prayer. But now he says, while you're praying, do these things. And and this content of their prayers is rather encouraging and a bit challenging to me. It gives us insights how the God-man, Christ, moves us outward. That's a natural progression for any Christian, is that there is a sense that it should move outward. So it gives us some of that insight. Now that he's established what attitude we should have in all our prayers, he comes to the specifics for kind of a particular kind of prayer, a prayer of mission, 
Or maybe perhaps a prayer of what every Christian should put their hands to. What are those? Well, one thing he asks is for an open door. Paul, in essence, is asking for opportunity to be about the work of God. Paul so longs for so many moments to be about God's work that he asks them to pray for him and to pray for more opportunities. Opportunities for what? Well, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't leave us in the woods of what he exactly wants to occur. I want an open door for one reason to declare the mysteries of Christ. So back in chapter 1, we learn this mystery is Christ in you. It's very clear this mystery of Christ is the message of Christ, the message of reconciliation, the message of man being redeemed and made right with God. Paul says, I want an open door to declare that. Please, church, please, brothers and sisters, pray that God would fling wide many, many opportunities for me to declare this great message. The one single motivation for all of this is Christ. Christ drives the mission. Christ calls us up from the mundane and calls us forth with radical purpose to declare Christ, to proclaim reconciliation through the work of Christ on the cross. Mission for the church is declaring Christ, which, by the way, Paul is in prison for. We didn't even see that. All of a sudden, you get to chapter 4 before he even mentions, oh, by the way, I'm in prison. If I'm writing a letter, Verse 1, I want you to know something. I am up in prison, and I ain't happy about it. Because that's, that's me, and I'm terrible. When we get to chapter 4, and he's like, oh, hey, a news, I forgot this. I'm in prison, by the way. I find that to be extremely interesting. See, he is completely devoted to Christ, even if it means and this is not the first day that Paul has spent a night in prison. <laughs> this is not the first moment where he has suffered greatly for this mystery, this message of Christ. This message of reconciliation brought by the shed blood of Christ. He wants to make it clear. This is fascinating. Paul wants to make the message of Christ clear. He doesn't want to exalt his knowledge, which Paul had a lot. He, he could walk circles around us in understanding. Because I didn't want to exalt that. I want to make this mystery of Christ super clear. To those whom he has opportunity in prison. <laughs> this is crazy. Rather than defend his case to get out of prison or bemoan his situation, he wants to declare Christ clearly. If you and I are locked against the wall, if you and I are stuffed away in a dungeon, what are we saying? Get me out of here. It stinks in here. I want better food. You know, I don't know what we'd be saying. I went out of this place. He's like, no, please pray for more opportunities. And by the way, pray that I make it clear as I ought to speak. 
in, in prison. <laughs> this is beautiful. To, to declare Christ clearly. It does no good to speak for hours if the message specifically about Christ is not clear. And Paul says, I want it to be clear. When it comes to mission, we must pray. But not only pray, we must participate. Verse 5, Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. See, this walking, which is kind of, uh, it means how you live. That's what it means. A metaphor for how you live, how you walk, how you go about life. Do that thing called life in wisdom. Now, this is I don't know the exact number, but quite a few times he's mentioned the word wisdom, and he's oftentimes said that Christ is wisdom. Now he's saying, as you live out life, you should live in a way that shows wisdom. And that wisdom and that walking and that living is directed towards how we should treat those outside the church, how we live out this reconciliation that we should be thankful for. How we live out our relationship with God. Is it seen? Is it noticed? Does it look any different? Walk in wisdom. We should not be so self-consumed individually or just solely church people that we do not consider our relationships outside one another in this room. Matter of fact, Paul, considered of such utmost importance, he deals with it here. He also sees it as a natural outflow of Christ's shed blood applied to our life. The natural outflow is what? It's to think about those outside the church. So much so, he says, we should think and act wisely. When we went through the Proverbs series, this was no, I mean, this, this was so abundantly clear to me of how crucial brothers and sisters living wisely in the community screams that God is effective, and God is good, and Christ has changed us. So abundantly clear. Because do you realize the greatest depiction your coworker, classmate, your friends, or your own children might ever see of Christ is in you? That is sobering. And I think it should be. Sometimes we need to maybe sit back and say, the only depiction of Christ that those around us that may see it is me. What's being said? See, Paul, he knows this reality. And he asks that your way, their way, our way of life be full of wisdom. But he has made it abundantly clear in chapter 2, wisdom according to Christ, not man. There's a radical difference. And we unpacked that pretty thoroughly a few weeks ago. So, perhaps to be caught up with trivial things of little significance is perhaps not wise. To rail and degrade another individual for a mistake might not be wise. To start rumors might not be wise. To underhandedly get your ideals ahead of another or to outright take credit for another's ideals perhaps might not be wise. To only be concerned with your child's behavior in regards to how it makes you look, rather 
than the condition of their heart might not be wise. Others are watching. To cheat to maintain a 4.0, as tempting as it may be to get that scholarship, or pass your assignments off to others to complete, perhaps may not be wise. To be more devoted to your son's success in sports rather than Christ might not be wise. To be consumed with your paycheck or bank account rather than the goodness of God through Christ, well, church, it, it may not be wise. To seek satisfaction and comfort in our accomplishment than the shed blood of Christ, well, we've learned how unwise that is. These things reflect the wisdom of the world, but not the wisdom of God. You see, human wisdom says, do whatever it takes to get to the top. Whereas the wisdom of God says, consider others more significantly than yourself. That's staggering. It surely is countercultural. But this is how we participate in mission. By walking and living out the effects of the gospel on our lives. You see, the gospel, the God-man, he truly changes us. He gives us the mind of Christ, as Corinthians tells us. And we therefore process the world around us a bit differently through the lens of God's word, through the lens of the work of Christ and what he calls us to. We function differently. So we should make the most of our time, use each and every moment to proclaim Christ through the way we live, and particularly what proceeds from our mouth. Oh, man, this would get me in major trouble. Making the most includes what flies out of this thing. And if you've been around me any amount of time, there's a lot of stuff that flies out of this thing. Some helpful and a whole lot not helpful. Making the most. Living out Christ and what proceeds from us. This is why Paul singles out our speech. It's one of the best ways to make most of our time with others. Our speech is to be gracious. Show, show, show kindness in our conversations. You as a believer and, and people know that, they should say, you're kind. That should be a natural statement about you. Don't go on and 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 on about yourself or the wretched condition of the world around us. Well, be gracious. Now, understand something clearly. We can still be kind and discuss the wretched condition of the world around us. We can still do that. But it's always peppered in kindness. It's always peppered with gracious speech to make sense of our current situation. See, we have the mind of Christ. We have a way to process the world around us. And here's what's beautiful is we have an adequate answer. So sure, we should be about the condition of the world, but in kindness. In doing that, and in discussing those things, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let your words be appropriate and fitting for the occasion. Our words should be seasoned in a way they are effective to those who hear them. Our words should be seasoned in a way they are effective to those who hear them. Our words should be choos chosen wisely. 
as to bring an effect on the one who is listening. Not to show how smart you are. Not to show how stinging you can be with your comments. Not to show you're a great wordsmith. But so that there could be an effect. Primarily that they would come to know Christ. Seasoned with salt. And if we are the salt of the world, boy, we have plenty of saltiness to give. Our words should be winsome, particularly in the way that we answer others. And, and I could not help but think of this. Perhaps this is what Peter meant when he actually said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Because this speech, he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Maybe this is what Peter's getting at. Be prepared. Be ready. Now, in theory... This all sounds pretty good. It sounds very great. But what does this look like to pray and participate in mission in spreading the gospel? Well, we do not need to look very far because just a mere six verses letter, we see Epaphras again. So verses 12 through 13, let me read this to you and it'll be on the screen. We meet this incredible character, this individual who truly lived, named Epaphras. Well, here's what Paul says about him. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Who is this guy, Epaphras? This is the second time, chapter 1, we see him. Now we see him again here in chapter 4. We learn about him in Philemon as well. These are the only references to him. History doesn't tell us what happens to him after this. I looked. I tried to find out. As pertaining to all of our stories before, who knows what happened to him? Well, who is he? Well, he's one of them. He's from that area. They know him. They grew up with him, apparently. He's from there. Paul also says he is a true servant of Christ, which Paul doesn't throw that accolade out very often. But he does here for Epaphras. And, as we learned in chapter 1, he is the one who originally brought the gospel to them. He is a world-renowned church planter. He brought the gospel there and in the surrounding area and planted churches. He's now with Paul, reporting the condition of the church. Perhaps uh, Epaphras, as these uh, heresies were starting to rise in prominence, he went to Paul and said, Paul, what do we do? We need counsel. We need advice. How do I handle this? See, this man is a shining example, and he cares deeply for his people, right? He's one of them, the place he lived, the place he was from. See, he's no foreigner to them, but one of them, and at his own peril is deeply committed to the gospel because Philemon tells us that he is also a fellow prisoner with Paul. Seeking out counsel for the church, he goes to Paul and finds himself in prison with Paul. I guess he has his ear for a while, right? <laughs> Not only is Epaphras a godly man, 
but he embodies what Paul has called the Colossians to be and do in the verses we just looked at. Check this out. So what did he do? Well, he prayed, right? It actually says his prayers for them, are, he even struggled in prayer. An intense calling out to God on their behalf. Not just a moment when he remembered, but he struggled. He agonized in prayer. He called out to God on their behalf so that they would stand mature. He's concerned that they're going to lose the gospel. He wants them to hold close to the true gospel. To be mature in it, not human wisdom, but in the wisdom of God that's embodied in Christ. To remain faithful to the gospel that keeps us alive and saves us. Stand mature in that gospel. That's the content of his prayer, begging and pleading at his own risk that the gospel would be clear. He prays for them to be fully assured of God's will. This is interesting because this sounds just like Paul's opening prayer. Paul prays the same exact thing that Epaphras has been struggling for for who knows how long. Perhaps Epaphras had been doing it so consistently it became the Apostles' Prayer as well. This is what he's praying for them. When's the last time you struggled in prayer for someone? I mean, that just seems like the natural next question to me. As I read that, I'm like, okay, Epaphras, I, I see you. I see what you're doing here. Um, when's the last time that we, we struggled in prayer for someone, particularly about the gospel, whether they're walking away or whether it's dangerous or whether they don't know? Epaphras, I'd like to meet that guy. Not only does he pray, but he participates. He does the second part, and actually Paul says he worked hard for them. He doesn't just say, well, he did a few things. No, he is continually uh, striving and working hard. How? Well, he brought the gospel to them. He heard it from Paul, apparently. And he came running to his town and said, you need to hear this message. And now he's fighting for them to not lose it. That's how he's working hard, that they would not lose this precious note of Christ as fully God. Christ by the means in which we are made right and well. He's a servant of Christ, and he's worked hard in that service. When I read stuff like this, and this is just how my mind works, but I start to ask the question, what if? Have you ever done that? you ever like read a story or read something and, and kind of start to kind of make that mental kind of jump to say, well, what if? What if perhaps an Epaphras would rise up among us and would say, yeah, I'll put my feet to prayer. I'll put my heart, my mind to prayer on behalf of my coworkers, the community, the people in my church, and I will work hard. I mean, I mean what if? I don't know. I can't answer that. and Our minds can wonder, though. I, I bet it would be fun to see what if. Paul has given two massive instructions, pray and participate. 
And then he goes to a, a list of individuals who have been doing that and highlights Epaphras from the page so that they are clear. Oh, yeah, we know Epaphras. That's what it looks like. Who are those among us that embody that? Who are those among us that could show us the way? So what are some things we can take away from this final chapter of Paul writing to the church? Well, one thing I can think of is we are compelled by Christ, the God-man shed blood, to be about his work of reconciliation. There is no other motivation. There is no other reason to willingly walk to your death joyfully than Christ shed blood for us. We are called to pray and participate. He, Jesus, God-man, did a great work, and we get the blessed opportunity to be about his work. He suffered greatly, therefore, as Paul and Epaphras did, we should do the same, compelled by the same compassion and love as Christ. So, listen to this quote and, and hear the love of Christ that compelled him to be about this work. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, talking about the garden when Jesus was praying and sweating blood. Here's what he says. The anguish of Christ's soul at that time was so strong as to cause that wonderful effect on his body when he sweats blood. But his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy as they were, was stronger still. The heart of Christ at that time was full of distress, but it was fuller of love to vile worms. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with the deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountain of its sins. And this last line is beautiful. Those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. That's good stuff. We are driven, compelled to be about God's mission through both prayer and participation because of the God-man, Christ. That undergirds our work. That is our mission. That is our motivation. Notice Paul calls them to pray first. Boy, this sounds eerie, similar to our Savior, the God-man, who said this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what's the next thing you should do? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Would you pray for life among the nations? Would you? Would you pray for your coworkers? Would you sit with your children and pray for their classmates as you learn who they are? Would you pray for our college students as they prepare to go into a massive mission field? Would you pray for the missionaries to the college campus? Would you pray for our high school students each and every week who are trying to walk in wisdom and trying to show their classmates the Lord? Brothers and sisters, let's pray diligently to the Lord of the harvest. Secondly, make no mistake about the mission of the church. It is to proclaim the gospel. There is, at times, a need to shift towards calling the church to care about social atrocities, relief work, city renewal, and the like. 
See, the church at times has not cared enough about these issues that are really at the heart of God. This needed shift, though, cannot overtake the priority of the mission, which is proclamation. Here's a great summary, as one pastor put it. When our churches support mercy ministry, our relief work, our humanitarian aid, our city renewal, there should always be the overarching goal that Christ might be known, understood, believed upon, and followed. There's not a lack of caring for those things, but it might take years and tremendous amount of wisdom for Christ to be known, understood, believed upon, and followed. And that priority should never stop one from offering relief efforts. Never should stop one to help a farmer understand better practices to get better yields, to get better profit for their family. should never stop that. Though these efforts and relationships, the gospel becomes tangible and the proclamation becomes possible. This is precisely the motivation for Paul and Epaphras and should be ours. Christ is our motivation for mission. Lastly, are you willing to suffer for the mission? Paul is in prison. Epaphras is with him. They sacrificed much because it was about Christ and not themselves. Their motivation was his shed blood. History is littered with men and women who lost their life for the cause of the gospel. And one final note, that's not on the screens, but I want to address you if you're here today and this message about the person of Jesus seems bizarre and out of place. It is. <laughs> it's a bit bizarre may feel a bit out of place. But, but might I ask you to consider that this message we discussed throughout the morning has stood the test of time. Consider 12 men alongside Jesus to today countless millions who gather this very hour to worship. Well, can longevity give credibility to something? Perhaps. But you might say there are other traditions that have lasted. Well, know this. None of them so comprehensively deal with humanity like this message. We've seen it for four weeks. Christ permeates everything. You see, oftentimes there's no room for God himself taking flesh and putting to death sin, which we could not do ourselves, in other human wisdoms. Most of those are driven by more action, more work, more, 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 more from you. Yet Christianity, Jesus, the God-man, simply says, surrender, trust, let go, through faith and repentance, cling to my cross, and therefore cling to my resurrection, the new life. Let's pray. Father God, I am grateful for our time together this morning. I'm grateful for the message of Christ that so comprehensively works in my life. It redeems me. It has reconciled me so that I can be in fellowship with you. That is a great work in and of itself. But Father, it doesn't let me go there. It works in me. To each and every day to be more like you. And Father, it adjusts my focus. Your work through your son on the cross adjusts my purpose, radically rearranges the way I see life around me, and compels me to see others come to know and worship you. So, Father, walk with us this week. Give us great courage to pray and participate. See you in your name and pray. Amen.